and welcome to the Alba Diversity Podcast, an Alba network undertaking to profile and highlight diverse and immigrant neuroscientists. The Alba network aims to promote equity and diversity in the brain sciences. We talk to neuroscientists across positions, career paths and backgrounds to better understand their personal journeys. We showcase the grit and determination it takes to overcome hurdles as part of underrepresented or minority groups. We talk about what keeps them going as individuals and as neuroscientists in today's world. Yes, so my name is Merima Shabanovich and I'm currently a PhD student at University of Oxford. I'm studying neuroscience. Before we go ahead, uh, can you just say where you are from and like the name of the place, please, the name of the small town, that would be amazing. And uh, Uh, yeah, when did you start moving around the world? (laughs) So I'm originally from Bosnia-Herzegovina. I grew up there until I was about 18. And then after high school, I moved to Abu Dhabi for my undergraduate studies. And um, I was living in London for a semester. And then now I moved to Oxford for my PhD. But yeah, the the little town is called the (laughs) Breza. And my current work is about psychedelic drugs and um, how they can affect our brains in the long term, way after the acute intoxication phase. Um, I look at how this might affect cognitive flexibility and just brain structure in general, which um, would hypothetically help explain the lasting remission that is observed in clinical studies that show that a single psychedelic um, assisted psychotherapy is effective in treating a wide range of neuropsychiatric disorders from depression, anxiety, and PTSD. And this is in treatment resistant populations where traditional pharmacotherapies just did not work. So it's, it's quite an exciting field and it has had its renaissance in the past decade. So I'm very excited to you know, contribute a little bit. <laughs> What made you interested in this in the first place, like psychedelics and neuroscience? Yeah, people usually assume I come from the drug part, Uh, but actually I was always interested in behavioral neuroscience. My work as an undergrad and as a master's student was mostly about that. And so as a behavioral neuroscience, you, you want to find something that changes behavior. And for any therapy to work, you want it to change behavior and to do so quickly and effectively and to last for a long time. And then all these uh, interesting articles were coming up about psychedelics and, it, you know, it's very catchy stories and not just in scientific journals, but just the media in general. And so I was very interested and kind of confused. Well, what are these magical things? <laughs> they do uh, and, <laughs> Yeah. And I will admit I had a fair share of kind of misinformed judgments about drugs in general and then when I started you know doing my deep literature review and and going into all these old studies from the 60s and the 70s and then finding out all about the political background of why these drugs you know were illegalized it really opened my mind (laughs) so I think it taught me not to judge a little bit uh, yeah more liberal Um, but it's definitely something that 
I mean, it, it, it's a really fascinating topic that keeps surprising me all the time. That's wonderful. I mean, that's exactly what you need to, you know, keep that enthusiasm going in neuroscience. When was the first time you thought about neurons and like the brain? And, and you know, I know you, you already told us a little bit about how you're interested in behavior, but like something must have pushed you a little bit, like maybe during undergrad being like, huh, behavior is connected to the brain. And so how did that, how did that switch happen? So when I went to undergrad, I thought I was going to do chemistry, but I was aware. Um, so I studied my undergraduate at New York University in Abu Dhabi. And I knew that they had a specialization in brain and cognitive science. But I mean, you don't really study brain so much in high school because it's too, too advanced. Yeah, you're just told this is the brain. It does really complicated things. We can't tell you about that now. <laughs> So I, I was aware of the program, but then, I mean, I just didn't know what that would even mean. And then kind of within the first few semesters at university, whenever there was a biology class, and I would always have so many questions. And, and you know, a, a student gets frustrated when they ask, well, how does this work? And then the professor is just like, well, actually, we don't know. <laughs> and uh, there's so much of that in neuroscience. It's ironically easier to ask really specific questions about specific proteins or genes. And, you know, we can zoom in now, we have the technology, but when you ask about behavior and, and especially complex behavior or just anything that in the whole brain would require to orchestrate, it's like, um, we don't really even know how to start answering those questions. And especially currently, neuroscience is very tech-driven, right? If, if you want a fancy paper in the holy trinity of journals, you need to have everything from my You need to have calcium imaging, you need to have a tool. You need to have, uh, <laughs> exactly, but you just need to do everything. And it doesn't even matter if it makes sense to do that. <laughs> it, doesn't, it doesn't even matter if it actually answers your question, but as many techniques as you compile in them. And behavior has kind of moved to being the lower of the neurosciences because it's not glitzy anymore. It's not glitzy work to just sit there and, and wait for animals to do something if you do animal work. But it still made more sense to me to observe and study something that I can literally observe, that I can kind of manipulate and then see an immediate effect. And especially because I was always interested in kind of more complex behaviors, so kind of like social behavior or even sexual behavior is complex. Yeah, <laughs> depending sure. on the species. And now with, with mental health therapies, you need to think of a lot of different aspects of behavior in order for your therapy to work. Um, so it just made more sense to me to not go down the microscope route. When I first was giving the psychedelic injections, and so the psychedelic response in a mouse is this head twitch that they do. So they just kind of shake their heads. And in a video, it just means a couple of frames where you don't see the ears of animal because it's so quick. But um, yeah, I remember the first time I was giving the injections and technically I shouldn't be in the room, I should leave the room, but then I was just, I just need to see something so that I know it worked. And I saw that little twitch and I was like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> um, but you know, those moments are rare because most of our day-to-day -day work is, it's just, you know, let's say it, it's boring sometimes. It is, and, it is, absolutely. And, it, and so when those rare moments happen where you're just so excited about something, it is pure joy.
That's fantastic. Thank you for telling us about that. It's so cool what fascinates people. Is there somebody who you've looked up to in neuroscience in your life? Is there somebody who you think is a role model, mentor and you've learned a lot from that? I've had great supervisors in my undergraduate. Dipesh Chaudhary was one of them and Justin Blah and Claude Desplan who were amazing professors and just teachers that kind of inspire you to do work, not necessarily the work that they're doing, but just they gave me this thinking that oh i can do this work and i think as a student when you're going into science it's a very abstract thing of what it is to be a scientist and what it is that you do day to day and so when i first started working in the lab i mean i had no idea what i was supposed to be doing <laughs> and the fact that oh he's just making cables and connecting things and setting up equipment that ends up taking most of our time maybe to someone it would mean that it's less magical as a result but actually to me it meant like oh i can do this it's just work you know it's normal work and uh, these people have learned it so i can find it too and um my postdoc that, that trained me up in, in, in that lab you know we had very different personalities and i may not necessarily agree with the, his teaching technique every time but it really worked so for example the first time i was supposed to do surgeries i was so scared because you know the word surgery is very like, it's intimidating <laughs> um, yeah yeah uh, but then his approach was well we're just going to do you know 20 surgeries in 2 days and you're going to you're going to know how to do it at the end of that and uh, it was true <laughs> <laughs> that's the best way you learn by doing and I'm, I'm not really the type of person to get very impressed by people's names or kind of achievements that you know for example when someone tells oh there's this famous person coming to give a seminar I don't really get that excited I'm like okay but I don't know them so I I'm not just going to be impressed by this name or a bunch of papers that they published because I don't know how they were oh you know what they did yeah. so what I've admired in people was very much linked to their work ethic and how much effort they put into things and and how many you know sacrifices they had to make for for their work and not just their work their life and and things like that and so i find that more valuable than admiring someone's you know god-given talent <laughs> and definitely more of the effort versus talent it's not easy to separate the hype from the actual person yeah. right but i find other things a lot more telling mm-hmm. and a lot more applicable to me because if you're looking for someone to admire you want to find qualities that you want to have in yourself yeah and, and so, you want them in your vicinity i feel right like you you want to learn from them and you want to see them in action and you want to see if your values align and that makes that makes perfect sense um so is your postdoc a good mentor did they teach you nice things other than surgery <laughs> you know it took me a while but we did kind of become friends it was probably like the closest day to day science relationship i had i think in, in his case what i admired was the fact that he was living there without his family he's chinese yeah and as many of us international students and workers know you leave people behind he had a daughter that he hadn't seen as, you know as a baby and, and things like that and so um i was very happy that he decided to move back to chat over he can live with them
these are the aspects of life. Yeah. Extra battles that you have to fight that nobody recognizes. Right. Unless the same situation as you. It's not something that's easy for somebody to recognize if they haven't gone through it. I feel that's probably one of the other reasons why immigrant scientists know more or less how it is to go through all of these bad, sort of not bad, but like just hard times. It's not something easy to go through to stay away from your family. Even if you don't have, I don't know, a spouse and a child, sometimes it's just staying away from your parents or your immediate family. And that's just hard, right? Is there somebody like that in your current lab that you admire and you look up to and you really like their work ethic? One of my current supervisors is David Bannerman. I really wanted to work with him because he was the kindest person. <laughs> he would ask me what I think first without telling me what I should be doing first. And I think that was a big sign for me as a student where my opinion is appreciated as well and my input mm. is being asked for versus, you know, in some other cases, people just tell you what to do or yeah. what you should be doing. And then yep. you kind of have to fight for your own little input there. Right. Um, so I really like that. And I, you know, I also appreciated that a lot of his work in the past has been about, you know, questioning whether the theories that we take is a complete given. Right. You know, whether there's a catch there. Yeah, um, challenging I, assumptions. I really like challenging the status quo. That's that's an important job. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Do you consider yourself to be part of an immigrant or a minority group? And have there been times where you faced sort of discrimination because of this? I've always found the, the language of immigration very <laughs> interesting because what's an immigrant and what's an expat? And it seems that everyone's an immigrant unless you're a white person, in which case you're an expat. Those different words have a very different set of assumptions linked to them. Okay. Um, I am an immigrant in the sense that I have migrated from my country of origin and now, you know, multiple times and have worked and lived elsewhere. So, yes, in, in the current sense of the word, I am. I think I'm still in a very privileged position because people cannot assume my country of origin based on how I look. They cannot assume my religion based on how I look. They cannot assume my sexual orientation. So any of those easy targets are not available. And if anything, if I go into the Western world, I'm being assumed to be one of them. I can blend in. And people have, you know, confused me for an American before or something. And they always think it's a compliment. <laughs> How do you um, feel about that though? Like when you're in your Oh, I don't like it. <laughs> <laughs> but I understand, you know, the accent or whatever. Um, but, I, you know, I take great pride in the fact that I come from a small country, a very small town in that country um, that no one's ever heard of. And the fact that I'm here. <laughs> and so whenever I have to introduce myself and then say where I come from, and oh, really? And then I say where I studied. Oh, really? So there's just a lot of these, oh, really? <laughs> and um, don't get me wrong, I like surprising people, but it does make the imposter syndrome just skyrocket. Yeah. Right? Because That's then you think, well, obviously, if they haven't seen people like me here before, then, you know, it must be some sort of mistake that I'm here. And I remember when I was applying to grad schools and thinking, oh, yeah, you know, 
had good results and things. And but I was at my lowest of confidence oh, levels I've ever been when I was applying because I had that realization that hey, it doesn't matter how hard I work or what my grades or results or whatever are. What matters is that passport, and I needed full funding because unless I have full funding, I cannot go and study somewhere yeah. else. Yeah. And so I wasn't applying based on, oh, who would I want to work with and where can I do the work I want to do? It was about who can give me money. And uh, nobody likes talking money. You know, it's a dirty word. And But Which it I don't understand. Yeah, I don't understand why at all. I mean, it you determines. can't do science in a vacuum, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it determines whether you get students of um, diverse origin. It determines whether you get people that look and think differently than you in, in your exactly. institutions. Um, and I am, as a you know, very privileged and, and very uh, grateful for the funding that I have right now. Um, but I am the first one of to get it, like the first Bosnian to be in this program or to get these scholarships. And I don't think I'm a special little unicorn because of that. <laughs> I would much rather be 56th or 208th of something than to be the first because it's just lonely. And it makes you wonder, well, how come? It also makes you wonder, well, will there be anyone else? And will this depend on how I do? Because if I'm the first of something that people have seen, I need to be great. <laughs> Otherwise, they will not bother that to is invest like, in anyone else. <laughs> yeah, that's a crazy amount of pressure, though. I mean, wow. Exactly. So, you know, now I'm just thinking, you know, <laughs> I have to speak for all of the Bosnians. <laughs> Um, and it, yeah, it, it, it's just a lot harder to get rid of that imposter syndrome. Yeah. And, and you know, I've, I've spoke to um, postdocs, for example, that are saying, you know, when they were applying for jobs, you get, you know, they quickly realize they need to beat every other candidate and not even just be better, but you need to be so much better because why wouldn't they just hire someone from the UK, for example, or someone from the EU? This was pre-Brexit. <laughs> um, and, you know, not bother with the extra problem, I'm, I'm putting air quotes, <laughs> extra problems um, of hiring someone international because they need visas and they need work permits and things take longer to get them to, to be in that country to work. Yeah. And, you know, postdocs have temporary contracts and, and they have to move all the time as you probably know way better than me. Yeah. And so it's, a, it's already, you know, not a position in which you're well-paid and in which you have stability. And so it's, it's so much harder if you're trying to make it somewhere else where you do not have that supportive that that was beautiful i mean you you just you condensed everything in a nutshell thank you like that really spoke to me because that's as a postdoc as an advanced postdoc that's exactly what i'm going through right now um thank you for saying it out loud 
not a lot of people have that realization like i said and i'm really glad you do and i'm really glad you have that in mind as as you move forward you've already spoken about uh, diversity and immigration and, but i will ask you the question anyway because i love the conversation we're having and i want us to talk more about this mm-hmm. if there's a time or place in your career in neuroscience till now where being inclusive of diversity has resulted in something good or maybe not something good tell us about it what does diversity mean to you at so at nyu abu dhabi the it 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 was a new institution when i was um applying it was only the first graduating class was was wow. graduating at that point so it and with every new institution that has the generous funding that that institution had comes this great liberty to reinvent yourself <laughs> and part of that reinvention for them was to attract students from all over the world and the way that you attract students from all over the world is to give them full funding and i mean full funding yeah um and so you know i was one of the students that thought of that university as the promised land and it definitely you know <laughs> definitely wanted to get in because it offered all these things yeah um and so in our class of about you know 200 we had students from more than 70 countries that is completely crazy we live on this desert island i mean now it's not so desert things have definitely changed since i graduated but you know you all live in this little bubble and people just speak so many different languages in the dining hall and you have people who look very different and you speak very differently think very differently mm-hmm. which is you know not always the easiest to deal with mm-hmm. um and everyone comes with their own you know culture and, yeah. and and set of expectations and things like that so having roommates is really fascinating <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> to have um but it was just so completely normal that was just our life and we got to learn so much from each other and the fact that you know if you're in a class about the history of Iran and there's someone from that country there who can tell you firsthand experience and well, that just you know ups your game so much more yeah uh i will forever continue to praise <laughs> my university because i think it it was absolutely crazy to have that experience yeah and it may it, it makes you think oh wow we can really do anything because there were students there you know who were from countries of affluence and who probably would have had a great you know education regardless who bragged about you know <laughs> not going to harvard and, and choosing this instead which is fine you know it's okay. <laughs> but there are also students who would not be able to afford education like this at all and myself included and you know it it equalizes us in a sense that now you have access and now you get to choose what you do with it Of course when we were all graduating the real world started creeping back in and students would apply to jobs but then they would be like oh where are you from oh we cannot really pay for your visa so you know yeah things stopped being equal at that point right. so it really was a little bubble but i think i still witnessed just how much one can learn and grow and and, and do that it it makes no sense <laughs> you know that that where you come from kind of limits how much you 
learn if, if you choose to do so. Yeah. So I've, I've definitely, definitely witnessed how diversity helps and, and how it just enriches your life and your education and, and yeah. everything. NYU Abu Dhabi gave you a lot more than just a full ride mm-hmm. scholarship. I mean, they give you the chance to learn from so many people and and use that learning and like carry it forward with you all your life. I mean, here you are, so many years later, still talking to me about your time in Abu Dhabi. So <laughs> Things are definitely changing now, and and it's no longer that new institution. So you know, right. if you want more students, then the funding you can offer becomes more limited, and so yeah, you yeah. know. Who's to say that in a few decades it, it might, you know, not turn out to be just the same old university like every else? But right. I, I was very happy to be there at that magical time. University of Oxford also prides itself on being so diverse and things like that. But then for me, mm. with that reference frame that I had, I came in. I was like, "You must be joking!" Because <laughs> <laughs> if your idea of diversity is having people from all over Europe, honey. <laughs> <you know? laughs> I love that. That was a perfect yeah. reaction. <laughs> But, I mean, it's true. And I mean, especially now after Brexit and when so many funding bodies have, have just withdrew. I mean, the program that I'm currently studying, it no longer exists. If oh. I was just two years late, I would not be here. <laughs> I would not be having this, you know, uh, opportunity that I have. And so we all know what happens is that if they're given an option of picking one UK student or, um, sorry, two UK students or one international student, then of course they're going to, you know, pick two. And I'm not saying that they don't deserve it or anything like that, but I think it just it, it clouds the judgment in a way that different things get prioritized. Yeah. And again, it puts so much more pressure if. You know, for international students and yep. international staff that wants to come and work, because you just have to be so much better, and yeah. you don't even know what better means. Yeah, <laughs> like you don't know what you're competing against, so you can't like exactly. target and improve things. Diversity has become an overwhelming catchphrase, and I see a lot of performative diversity <laughs> yeah. in institutional emails and you know um, PR marketing <laughs> or yeah, whatever. Yeah. Um, We don't need universities to tell us that. Oh, we love you know, diverse students. We want diverse students. You know what diverse students need? They need funding. Uh, they need health insurance. They need uh, relocation costs. They need living costs. They yeah. need uh, support for, yeah, making the transition of changing your whole life, of losing your identity, losing your language. Yeah. And so. You know, we don't need the love. <laughs> we need <laughs> chill, practical things. We need some concrete solutions that we can exactly. <laughs> I don't care if you love me. <laughs> I just care if I'm able to be there. Because yeah. if you offer someone a place, but they're then not offer them the resources they need in order to come and work for you or study at your institution, then you're not really doing the work that you say that you're doing. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Alba Diversity Podcast. 
To know more about the ALBA network and its activities to promote equity and diversity in the brain sciences, please visit alba.network. You can also register as a member for free and take full advantage of the network's resources. For more details, follow the Twitter handle at network underscore ALBA or AlbaNetBrain on Facebook.